Hello and welcome to the Inherited Wellness Podcast, a conversation of medicine, family history, and finding health and wellness by going back to our roots. I'm your host, Michael Smith, a naturopathic medical student, scientist, and family historian. Thank you for joining me today. Over the past two years, the term immunology has pervaded our collective vocabulary due to pandemics and epidemics of proportions that none of us have ever seen before. We are all considering ways in more depth than we ever have probably before how we get sick and stay healthy. The topic of immunology is very fascinating and it affects individuals and families alike. I'm so grateful today to have with me on the Inherited Wellness Podcast, someone who I feel is a foremost expert in immunology. She is a professor of immunology at the National University of Natural Medicine and director of communication innovation at Thena. I am so grateful to have Dr. Heather Zwicky. Heather, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for welcoming me on your podcast. Certainly. First and foremost, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey, but specifically what led you to study and research immunology? Sure. I grew up in Southern Minnesota and at Gustavus Adolphus College every year, they have something called the Nobel Speaker Series. And when I was a junior in high school, the Nobel Conference that year was focused on vaccines. And Dr. Jonas Salk spoke, as did Dr. Pippa Merrick, who wound up being a professor at the place where I did my graduate work. But that was my first introduction to immunology. And I knew as I went through college then that immunology was something I was super interested in. You have to remember that at the time, the HIV epidemic was what the country was dealing with. And we didn't know why someone would get a virus that then caused them to get cancer. And I was really interested in that link. My undergraduate degree is actually in math because the other thing that I'm interested in is how all these systems interact with each other and how the immune system interacts with the nervous system. So, you know, as we think about the COVID epidemic, why are people developing long-term fatigue when they have an infection? How do those things interact with each other? And how does that interact with our hormones and our gut and all of these different things? So when I when I applied to graduate school, I actually applied to graduate programs in immunology, neurology, and endocrinology, but I fell in love with the faculty at the University of Colorado immunology program. And so ultimately I decided on immunology because of who I got to work with, the quality of the faculty, the number of different topics that they were discovering things in. That's how I chose immunology. Fascinating. There's, there's definitely a history to that and disease and illness have not, I think, never been part of our collective human experience. Can you share a little bit about what immunology is? Sure. I think initially the study of the immune system was the study of infectious disease. We knew that people got sick and we knew there was this system in the body that was keeping them well and helping fight off things like bacteria, viruses, parasites. 
but we didn't actually discover the very first part of the immune system until the 1970s. Now think about that. That's really late when you consider anatomy and physiology all was happening in the 1800s. It took all the way to 1970 for us to figure out that the immune system existed. And that's because the vast majority of the immune system circulates. It's constantly scanning the body, looking for things that you might have picked up that doesn't belong in you. And it took a long time to discover a circulating organ system. So that's where the immune system comes from. We now know that the immune system doesn't just work on infectious disease. It also keeps us from getting cancer or maybe more accurately, when we get cancer, it's our immune system that gets it under control and kills it. It also is responsible for causing autoimmune disease when it gets out of balance and allergies. And so there's a lot of daily things like allergies that our immune system is doing. It responds to everything we put in our mouth. So every time we eat, our immune system is getting activated. So it turns out our immune system is a highly active system that we're still uncovering with respect to all the various things that it does. You mentioned that it's a circulating or circulating system, are th- and you've, you've alluded to different organs within the body. If someone was to think about the immune system and wanted to like pin it to a few organs that they're aware of, what are the key players in the immune system that maybe don't move around as much? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's usually a surprise to people to find out that the vast majority of their immune system is in their gut. The second biggest part of their immune system is in their skin. And then we go to things like lymph nodes. And a lot of people hear the word lymph nodes, but they don't actually know where they are. But there's a bunch of lymph nodes under your chin. Your tonsils are lymph nodes. You have lymph nodes that go down your spine and out your arms and down your legs. So those are the three big ones. Probably what most people think of is spleen because Mm -hmm. The spleen is a big sack of cells, but it turns out that it's not the biggest content when it comes to your immune system. The cells in the spleen are, while they are cells of the immune system, there's a lot more red blood cells in there as well. Definitely. I think one thing that's similar between their gut and our skin is that it's a barrier between us and the outside world. And specifically with our gut, we're taking food in and it's being assimilated. What are some of those mechanisms, both in our gut and in our, on our skin specifically, that are involved in those immune defense regulatory processes? Sure. So every time we're exposed to something, it's up to our immune system to say, is this dangerous? is this me? Is this something from the outside world? Is this thing from the outside world dangerous or is it safe? And should I go into attack mode or should I calm down in response to this stimulus? So as you can imagine, if you're eating a piece of chicken, it's mostly safe. And so your immune system's job is to take in the chicken, look at it, 
and determine whether it's safe or dangerous. Now, if that chicken has salmonella, now your immune system has to say, wait, there's a microbe in here. This is dangerous. And it does that by recognizing the pattern of salmonella. So over many years of evolution, our immune system has figured out that the bacteria that live in our gut are safe, but bacteria that come like salmonella on pieces of chicken from the outside world are dangerous. And it has to discriminate between those two things. So it's a constant surveillance system. If you think about like home invasion, you have to be able to say, oh, those are my neighbors. Those people are safe, but those people are criminals and they're coming to rob me. And that's what your immune system is constantly doing. It's like the ever, I think of the, uh, the novel 1984, where it talks about big brother is always watching and our immune system, it sounds like is always watching. That's right. And there's another very important thing that our immune system is doing after the invader has come in and the immune system has killed the invader. It has to do cleanup. It has to say, okay, what got destroyed in the process? I need to clean this stuff up and I need to bring things back to normal and back to a level of calm. And I think that's something that currently we, we also struggle with simply because our immune system gets ramped up and then it stays ramped up for a very long time. And we call that inflammation. When our immune system is on heightened alert for way too long, then we develop inflammation. And that often comes with things like pain and swelling and redness. And it is our immune system. It's just that our immune system is a little confused about whether or not it needs to stay on active surveillance or whether it can calm down again. Certainly. There are some conditions you mentioned, you alluded to autoimmune conditions that are experienced. And there's a lot of different forms of, of how that of, of autoimmune conditions, how are those related or different from immune responses to say bacteria or viruses? That's a great question. As it turns out, the immune response in an autoimmune disease is very similar to the immune response to a bacteria or virus. The difference is what the immune system is attacking. Mm -hmm. So when the immune system encounters a bacteria or virus, it goes through a whole series of steps to determine that that's dangerous, and then it mounts the entire response. When you have an autoimmune disease, the immune system goes through that same series of steps, but instead of seeing your own tissue as self and safe, it sees your tissue as dangerous. And so it goes through those steps. It determines that your pancreas, in the case of diabetes, is dangerous and it attacks the pancreas. Now, usually when you have an infection, the immune system is active until that infection is cleared. And then it stops. But in the case of an autoimmune disease, you're going to attack the organ until that organ is cleared, until your, your organ is gone. And once that pancreas is gone, then your immune system will stop. The problem is you no longer have a pancreas. Mm -hmm. So the reactions are the same. It's just the target that's different. And is there any way of 
reversing or changing the course of an autoimmune disease from an immunological standpoint? That depends on who you talk to. So in the case of autoimmunity, in conventional medicine, we would say probably not. That once you have an autoimmune disease, it's very hard to shut down that immune reaction. And we have a few drugs that we can use to block the immune response, mm-hmm. to block some of the things that the immune cells are making so that they're not as dangerous to the body. But most of conventional medicine would say, no, we can't stop an autoimmune disease once it's started. In integrative medicine, we use some different tools. And specifically, we use the fact that there that your immune system is in your gut and that there are these cells in your gut that are supposed to bring your immune system back into balance. Mm-hmm. These cells are called T regulatory cells. So T like tree, T regulatory cells can actually slow down your immune system. That's their job. Mm -hmm. And usually what they're doing is they're slowing down your immune system in case you're overreacting to some of the food you eat. But they can also slow down your immune system in an autoimmune disease. And so we've seen some really interesting cases over the last 10 years. People like Terry Walls have reversed their multiple sclerosis using the concept of T-regulatory cells. If you get those cells really active and and you feed your body right so that those cells are as active as they can be, you could reverse autoimmune disease. So I, I don't want people with autoimmune disease to feel helpless because it turns out with nutrition, and I know a lot of people are skeptical that food can do that much, But we have to remember that food is really the fuel for our body. And if we put in the right fuel, we use the high octane gas, we may actually be able to shift autoimmune disease. The Greek philosopher Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Something to that effect. And it it seems to be so true in this case where we can really affect our immune system by what we eat. Yeah. And I think that from that perspective, I think that most of us know that our body reacts differently with different foods we eat. We know that, you know, you eat a high fat meal before bed and you're going to have indigestion and you don't feel good. You know that you eat sugar and then you crash and that sugar high only lasts for a short period of time. Like there are certain things that we recognize about our body with food, but as we are coming to find out that food feeds the microbes in our gut and those microbes interact with our immune system in ways we never imagined. The last five years of understanding the microbes in our gut has given us huge insight into our immune system and how our immune system develops and how it is sustained over time. We talked a lot about food. What are some of the other things that we do to influence our immune system, whether it's for increasing it or decreasing it? I imagine there's elements of of exercise, of of our sleep, of other just daily foundations of health. Absolutely. So all those things that affect health are going to affect your immune system. So food is one of the big ones. Exercise is a big one too. As you think about exercise, think about the fact that 
as exercise is getting your blood pumping and, and moving faster, it's moving all of those cells into circulation so that they're able to do their surveillance job more rapidly and more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Sleep is a reset for our immune system. So when we think about inflammation, about the pain in our joints or neuroinflammation, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all of those sorts of things, we get a reset button every night when we go to sleep. And inflammation is supposed to slow down at that point. And if we're not sleeping well, not sleeping through the night, not going to sleep at a, at a similar time and waking up at a similar time each day, all of those resets don't happen. And we have more and more inflammation. Then there's there's a big influence on our immune system because of the relationship between the microbes in our gut and our immune system, and that's chemicals. It turns out that chemicals that kill the microbes in our gut have an effect on our immune system because those microbes are constantly interacting with the immune cells. So here we think about things like pesticides, preservatives in our food. We think about diesel in the air and other air pollution just all of the chemicals that we interact with on a daily basis. I know in the 1950s, we used to say better living through chemistry. Well, now we're recognizing that it may provide convenience, but it may not provide the health benefits that we're looking for. So, you know, thinking twice before we throw a fabric softener into our laundry, which might make things smell good, but might actually suppress our immune system. Some of the other things that are good for our immune system are some of the vitamins that are out there. So vitamin D is known to have a positive effect on our immune system. And we saw that with COVID as well. We saw that people who had healthy vitamin D levels tended to fight off COVID better than people who had low vitamin D levels. Vitamin C is another vitamin that has an effect on the immune system, as does vitamin A. And vitamin A has actually been shown to help decrease autoimmune reactions. So some of the the main vitamins are also going to be beneficial for our immune system, as well as uh, some of the minerals. So zinc is one that probably most people have heard of, but also selenium, really good for your immune system. So we've got food, we've got vitamins, we've got exercise, we've got sleep. The other big one, the elephant in the room that no one knows what to do with is stress. We have to keep our stress to a healthy level of stress. Not saying no stress. No stress is unrealistic. And certainly we evolved to have some stress in our life. But the level of stress and the things that stress us out have to change. So driving in traffic, we got to not be stressed by driving in traffic, right? That's, that's something that we're choosing to be stressed about. It is a relative stressor as opposed to an absolute stressor. Your house burning down, everybody's going to be stressed about that. But, but some of the things that we get stressed about standing in a long line at a grocery store, or some of the things that are are less stressful, we got to lower it because it turns out that that is having an effect on our immune system. Politics. 
we're, we're stressed. We get stressed out about a political candidate and our immune system thinks that we're encountering an alliance. It doesn't know the difference. So when, when we recognize that, then we say, okay, let's lower those stress levels a little bit and get our immune system back to a healthy state. It's amazing how so many things in our daily life influence our immune system and our, and our body. And I think we can see that in other, in our, in our other body systems as well. How do genetic factors play into our immune system? Looking at kind of the immune system within a family, for example, with, with a shared genetic makeup. Sure. So probably the first biggest genetic influencer on the immune system has to do with immunodeficiency. The most common immunodeficiency is a deficiency in a particular antibody. And I'm saying that word thinking that most people have heard the word antibody over the last couple of years, Mm -hmm. but an antibody is one of the defenders that an immune system uses. And it turns out that there is a genetic mutation that causes people to make lower numbers of antibodies than other people. And it is what we call a primary immunodeficiency. There are other immunodeficiencies that we actually discovered during COVID. There are some people who don't make the proteins that allow our immune system to discriminate between danger and safe. And those people got very sick and many of them died during COVID. There's another protein that our immune system uses on a regular basis that allows the immune system to determine what's me versus what's you. Mm-hmm. And that protein turns out to be highly involved in autoimmunity. So when we see autoimmune diseases run in families, it turns out that is the main protein that determines whether or not you're going to have an autoimmune disease and what autoimmune disease it's going to be. So there are some genetics that are highly conserved that allow us to see We call it vertical transmission because Mm -hmm. if you look at a family tree, it goes down the family tree versus there's something called horizontal transmission, which would go across the branches of the family tree. What we see with immunology is we see that a lot of the the genes that are involved in the immune system are vertically transmitted. In other words, they go from mother to child. And then when that child becomes a mother, mother to child and mother and father to child. I think one of the, when I think about vertical transmission, I think about the birth experience itself. And there are, we've talked, you talked about the microbiome and the gut and the bacteria inside of us and around us on our skin. How does the, the birth experience influence someone's immune system kind of from the microbiome lens, whether someone's born vaginally versus through a C-section, for example, what are the differences and how does that manifest? Yeah. So I want to clarify the word microbiome first, because I want to make sure that your listeners know what it is. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the microbes in the gut, there's bacteria, there's viruses, there's parasites, there's yeast. And when we put all of those together in the ecosystem that is the gut, it is called a microbiome. Micro meaning small, bio meaning alive. Mm-hmm. And so all these small alive organisms are transferred from mama to baby during the birth process. 
when a baby is born vaginally, it sucks in those microbes from mama as it is being born, as it's going through the birth canal. When a baby's being born through C-section, instead of being exposed to mama's vagina, the baby is exposed to mama's skin. And so these skin microbes populate the baby's gut instead of the appropriate microbes. And it can take anywhere between nine months and three years for that child to actually have normal gut microbes in their gut. So right around three years, it looks like it starts to normalize, but because they have so many skin microbes in their gut, those babies tend to be much more at risk for things like allergies and hypersensitivities. And some of those people who are born C-section never normalize. They never get the right mixture of microbes. Now, because those microbes are constantly interacting with your immune system, that's why we're going to see more disease associated with people who are born C-section. We're going to see that they are at higher risk for allergies. They're at higher risk for autoimmunity, higher risk for cancer, pretty much all of the diseases that the immune system mediates and plays a role in either protective or causative. They're higher in people who are born C-section, but it's not just the birth process. It's then what happens immediately after birth and that's feeding. So it turns out that breast milk is highly suited for making those microbes grow. It has particular sugars in it that feed our microbes and make particular microbes grow. And it turns out that the nipple, mama's nipple, has microbes on it too. And the baby is picking up those microbes off the skin and then feeding them immediately with breast milk. If a baby is fed with formula, now we've got problems again because we're getting different sugars. It's not that we don't have any sugar. We have sugar in formula. It's just a different sugar. So a different set of microbes grows as a result of formula. Those microbes are constantly interacting with the immune system. And so again, we see that the immune system shifts. It might become more prone to allergies as a result of feeding formula as opposed to breast milk. We know historically, based on the development of the immune system, there are certain windows. And we know historically that A, babies were breastfed until they were at least nine months old. We can tell that based off of how the immune system shifts between nine months and 12 months. That's when we see a baby able to make a more mature immune response. We don't feed babies till they're nine months old anymore. We don't breastfeed babies. The vast majority of women stop breastfeeding at two and a half to three months. And that's because many of them are going back to work. We also know, B, that historically babies were fed at in tribes and a baby actually was passed from woman to woman and many different women would feed a single child. And that provided a diversity of microbes that we don't see today as we have moved to a single mother-child pairing for breastfeeding. So there's a lot of interesting things that used to happen that ultimately influence the health of the microbiome, which then influences the health of the immune system. 
That was a long answer. Sorry about that. No, no, it's all good. Thank you. It's fascinating to view medicine and with the way our bodies developed in the context of anthropology and how we as a human species have evolved over time. And especially even within the past few decades or even hundreds of years, when some of our listeners may think about, hear about microbiome and deficiencies in microbes, they might think about probiotics. And can probiotics fix problems with the with with imbalances of microbes in their gut? Historically, historically being like 20 years ago, we thought that we could fix our microbiome with probiotics. We now know that that's not true. It turns out that probiotics will show up the day that you eat them and then you poop them out. Mm-hmm. And the longest time that we have seen a probiotic stay in a human is 13 days. So probiotics are temporary. And that means that while it might feel like you're replacing some sort of missing microbe, it's it's a temporary fix. You have to continue to take the probiotic every day in order to see the benefit. Really, if we want to replace some missing microbes, we have to change our diet. And it's prebiotics, which are the foods we eat that feed our microbiome. And that's how we're going to ultimately shift which microbes are in our gut. And and when I say prebiotic, the other thing I want to talk about is fermented foods. The fermented foods will have the fiber that our microbes need. In addition, they'll have some probiotics in there. And those probiotics are eating the fiber in the fermented food I'm thinking things like sauerkraut, yogurt, cottage cheese, kefir, kombucha, those sorts of things. The probiotics in those foods eat the sugars and the fibers in those food, and they produce what we call a postbiotic. And those postbiotics actually help repair our gut microbiome. I have to ask, do you have a favorite fermented food? (laughs) I do. I like kombucha. It's my favorite. I can't do sauerkraut. Cabbage just gives me terrible gas. So I'm not a sauerkraut person. Do you have a favorite fermented food? I'd probably default to yogurt myself. Oh, there you go. It's fascinating. We've talked about lifestyle factors, genetic factors, microbiome factors. I'm curious about environmental factors very generally. Historically, looking at this anthropological lens, so to speak, we didn't live in cities like we do now, or many of us live now. There was a more agrarian lifestyle and living on farms and such. How is our immune system different depending on where we live in the city versus like a farm, for example? I can I can imagine that there's many different influences, chemical exposures and things like that. It may be in a city that's not in a farm, but what else have we have we learned about that difference? So there's huge differences to your immune system, depending on whether you live in a city or you live in a a rural area. For one thing, we know that folks who live in cities tend to be too clean. They wash their hands all the time. The hand sanitizer is everywhere. And when you're so clean, you're not getting exposed to a lot of microbes. In contrast, if you think about living on a farm, which I do, 
you might have a garden. So you dig in the dirt and you get exposed to those dirt microbes. You know, I have dirt under my fingernails right now. And that exposure to dirt and soil microbes turns out to be really good for helping your microbes and your microbiome. And then that's going to help your immune system. We also know that people who live in rural areas tend to have more pets. And interestingly, if you have more pets, especially furry pets, those pets tend to help you with your microbiome. Why? Well, pets groom themselves. And I think we've all seen a cat or a dog Mm -hmm. grooming themselves. And then we pet their fur after they have just licked it. And we pick up those microbes from those animals. So having a fish, having a snake, not so helpful, but having a dog or a cat or a horse or a llama, very helpful. We also know that there are some chemical exposures that happen on farms that don't happen in the city. So a lot of people who live on farms are going to be on well water. And if they have sprayed around your farm, if they've sprayed pesticides, it often gets into the groundwater and then goes into a well. So be careful about drinking well water if you live on a farm, because that is going to kill off the microbes in your gut and then kill your immune system. We've now seen that happen. We've seen lawsuits happen with Parkinson's disease. There's class action lawsuit with Alzheimer's based off of exposure to pesticides in well water. Also exposures to pesticides if you're a farmer. So I always promote going organic because while there is less chemicals on organic farms, there still are chemicals. And we know that you know, things like tractors often use diesel and you don't want to breathe in that diesel, wear a mask. So there are exposures that happen rurally. There are exposures that happen in the city. One of the worst things in the city is living close to a highway. If you live close to a highway, you're exposed to all the exhaust Mm -hmm. from the highway. And that tends to be a big no-no from an environmental perspective. So staying as far away from a highway as you can. Within your homes, you know, as I said, we live out in the country, so we don't have carpet. We have dogs. Carpet just gets ruined by dogs, right? Mm -hmm. And by and by the people who are going out to the field and then coming in and tromping mud all over the place. If you live in town, you might be more likely to have carpet and carpet off gases. So carpet tends to be a thing that you want to rip out. And if you want to have some area rugs, that's cool. But carpet is not a good thing from an immune system perspective. I like to think of the microbiome as the canary in the coal mine, as the thing that's going to die first, which is telling you that your immune system is also going. So if you tend to have a lot of gut issues, get diarrhea or constipation or gas on a regular basis, that means your immune system isn't functioning normally either. Your gut is messed up, your immune system is messed up. And those two things should be equivalent in your head. So if you're exposing yourself to things that you are aware are giving you GI issues, then be concerned that your immune system is also not functioning at its top level. It seems like based no matter where we live, whether it's an urban environment, suburban and rural 
we're always going to have exposures, but it's how we manage those and try to minimize them the best that we can that can ideally lead to the best outcomes for our health, our family's health, and our immune systems. That's absolutely right. Anywhere you live, you can be safe or unsafe. And it's just thinking about like making conscious choices about, hey, I am going to go ahead and use this fertilizer, which might not be so good, but I'm going to eat an extra carrot to balance it out. I'm going to have some more prebiotics. I'm going to eat some greens. I'm going to eat some onions and some leeks. And that's going to help me recover from using the hand sanitizer when I get on the elevator. We, in talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, we've talked about, we there's been a lot of conversation about how the immune systems of say elderly individuals are a lot different than the immune systems of younger teenagers, um, children. How does our immune system evolve throughout our lifespan? Yeah, great question. So as I mentioned earlier, our first, well, we actually start developing our immune system in utero, but our first big immune shift is going to happen with birth when we get populated by the microbiome. We have another shift in our immune system at about nine to 12 months when we're introducing solid foods and our immune system actually starts to mature. We get another shift right around three years when our microbiome hits its maturity level. And then another shift around seven years when our immune system starts to look like the immune system of an adult. As we go through puberty, our immune system doesn't shift as much. Our microbiome shifts a little bit. That's why acne and some of those things happen at puberty. But the next major shift from age seven all the way to around age 50 to 60, somewhere in that range, our immune system is an adult level. And if it's healthy and we don't have immunodeficiencies, we're able to respond to infections. And typically as adults, we get somewhere around four infections per year. They are not major infections. Usually that's like a 24-hour flu, some bug that we picked up that we're not feeling good for a couple of days and then we feel better again. Now, as you mentioned, as we age, we start to become what we call immunodeficient. We go through immunosenescence. Why is that happening? Well, one of the things that there's many theories out there and it doesn't happen in everyone. So we're able to study who are the people who are more immunosenescent than people who are not. One of the big shifts is that people change their diet as they age. They may have problems with their teeth. And so they stop eating crunchy foods like lettuce and carrots and those sorts of things. They may move into a care facility, an assisted living facility, and they're no longer in control of their diet. And that causes a major shift. But remember that anything that changes our diet is going to change those microbes in us. We also see that people tend to go on a lot of medications as they get older. They're developing things like cardiovascular disease, and so they're on a statin, and they might have depression, so they're on an antidepressant, and they're, they're taking so many medications. And what we've recently learned, this is just 2018, 
So this is new information from a scientific perspective. But we've recently learned that it's not just antibiotics that kill off the microbes in our gut. It turns out that many medications have an effect on the microbes in our gut. Most of them are negative, although some medications can cause certain microbes to grow. So I'm thinking specifically metformin, which is a drug given for type 2 diabetes, can often cause certain microbes to grow. But the vast majority of medications kill off microbes. And anytime we're killing off microbes, we're killing our immune system. So all of these things, our change in our diet, our change in our living, oftentimes people as they age stop exercising. We change our exercise, we're gonna, our immune system is going to decrease, etc. What's interesting is that they've studied octogenarians who are athletes, who run or ski or have some sort of main physical activity. Those people tend to eat better. So they're, they're training. So they have to eat good food and they're getting a lot of exercise and their immune systems are the immune system of a 40 year old, not the immune system of an 80 year old. So does our immune system have to decrease with age? It doesn't have to. It's just that for the vast majority of humans, as we age, we're slowing down, we're changing what we eat, we're taking medication, we're not exercising. And all of those lead to us being more susceptible to infection. And in fact, for COVID, what we saw is that people in their 80s were 600 times more likely to die from COVID. That's a huge increase in death rate compared to somebody in their 20s. So I think it's important, it tells us that we have to stay active if we want to have a healthy immune system throughout our entire lifespan. It really goes back to those lifestyle factors that we that we talked about earlier, the, the, the diet, the exercise, the sleep, the stress, and everything that little by little adds up for good or for bad. That's right. One way or the other. You know, it's interesting. My husband's grandma is 93 and I asked her, what her secret was to living a long life. And I thought she was going to tell me something about diet or something, you know, and she said, if I can't do anything about it, I let it go. And I thought that was the best advice because it is truly the key for reducing stress. If you can't do anything about it, let it go. I love that. Shortly after my wife and I were married, we lived in the basement of my wife's then 101-year-old great-grandfather. And he was still chipper, playing the marimba at care centers and eating his very healthy diet, including Oreos and root beer and chocolate. And he just <laughs> loved life. And it was so cool to see how nothing held him back from being happy and from helping others be happy as well. And and I can't help but think that his immune system was was good until the end and he passed at 104. That's amazing. Which is fascinating. Yeah, exactly. You know, they did a study in uh, Jamaica and they were looking at all of the people who lived to over 100. And one of the things that they discovered in these folks who were centurions, I guess you call them, is that the vast majority of them grew up and lived most of their life without refrigeration. Wow. And so all of the food that they were eating was fresh. And every day 
they would walk to the market and they would buy their fresh food and that is what they would cook. It provided them the exercise. It provided them the healthy food. And, you know, it also provided them social support because they would do it as a group Mm -hmm. and together they would go, they visit as they were. And I want to just emphasize that social support piece too, because we have seen that social support increases a hormone that we have called oxytocin. And oxytocin is also good for your immune system. It decreases inflammation. It increases our ability to fight infection. And so never underestimate the power of having a good visit with a friend. That's wonderful. We've talked about so many different things today. Is there one big takeaway that you'd like our listeners to believe and remember as they go about their day? Oh, that's so hard from an immunological perspective. I think probably my biggest takeaway is that if something goes wrong, don't feel like it, A, it's your fault and B, that it's unchangeable. Your immune system is turning over all the time, just like the microbes in your gut are. And I think we have a tendency to blame ourselves when we get a diagnosis. And I think we have a tendency to think, well, this is it. That's all there is. And the reality is so much of this is malleable. It's changeable. It's stuff that we can do something about if we're willing to change lifestyle factors. So you have to have the flexibility to say, okay, I'm going to get rid of this stressor, or I'm going to change my diet, or I'm going to add exercise or whatever it is, but it's not a a death sentence, if you will. Mm-hmm. So be ready to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make some changes. Those lifestyle factors are critical to the health of your immune system. I've definitely seen that in my own life and I, and others. And it's, it's, I resonate with that. One last question as we wrap up is one that I like to ask our guests, my guests on the inherited wellness podcast is what does wellness mean to you? I'd love your thoughts as an immunologist and and any closing thoughts you have, what does wellness mean to you? For me, wellness is the decision every day to live my best life. And that involves making healthy choices, right? Making healthy choices about what I put in my mouth. Even if I'm tired as I was this morning, I get up, I go for that walk. Wellness is a, a decision as opposed to something that happens to you. And it's an active state of being. Thank you so much. If someone wanted to get a hold of you or to connect with you further, what's the best way to do that? I have an Instagram account that is at hzwicky, Z-W-I-C-K-E-Y. I have an email at Thena, which is Heather at Thena, which is T-H-A-E-N-A.com. Those are probably the best ways to reach me. I also have a website, heatherswiki.com, and that will tell you where I'm speaking and has lists to some of the podcasts I've been on. So that will be another way to find out more about me. Wonderful. Dr. Zwicky, thank you so much for your time and, and joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
Thank you for joining me today on the Inherited Wellness Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please share it with a friend. I look forward to you joining me next time. And until then, be well.